A policy defines which users and applications can access and modify resources in a computer system. In a file system, a user might have permission to read or write to a file. In a cloud infrastructure deployment, a user might have the rights to deploy a new server. One microservice may or may not have the necessary permissions to talk to another microservice. All of these are use cases where a policy defines the behavior within this computer system. Policies in a company can be managed in a range of ways. Configuration files, dashboards, and centralized permissions databases. A policy engine is a system for managing and automating the policy creation and deployment within an organization. Microservices need to verify each request that comes in to ensure that the request has the correct permissions. To check those permissions, a microservice can contact the policy engine. That policy engine has all the information from the whole organization about who is allowed to do what. However, talking to the policy engine over the network can be a slow process. Open Policy Agent is a deployable agent that can run as a sidecar next to a service and check policies by looking inside of a cache. Torin Sundal is a core committer to the Open Policy Agent project, and he joins the show to talk about policy management, the Open Policy Agent, and the Kubernetes ecosystem. And surprisingly, he also talks about WebAssembly. Before we get on with the show, I want to mention that we are looking for sponsors. If you're interested in reaching more than 50,000 developers on Software Engineering Daily, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com, or go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sponsor to find out more information. Torrin Sandal, you are a software engineer at Styra. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. Uh, great to chat with you. Today, we're talking about policy engines and policy management. What is a policy? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, something that comes up a lot. So, you know, I, I think it's kind of like it's, it's useful to have a high level, you know, definition. And, and when we talk about policy, we, we typically talk about it just as like a set of rules, right, that you use to govern, you know, the system. But policy typically means different things to different people, right? So, you know, if you talk to a network engineer, right, it means a bunch of, you know, ACLs or something like that, or a, you know, traffic shaping configuration on a, on a network device, right? If you talk to someone from like InfoSec, it might mean, you know, a bunch of IAM rules in, 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 their, in their platform, right? So it means different things to different people. But the way that we, that we approach policy with, with the Open Policy Agent and at Stira is, is you know, we, we, we think about it as a, just a set of rules and govern how the system should behave. Why do we need policies in our software systems? That's a good question. Yeah. So if you take a step back, right, and you, you look at the way that modern systems are sort of built and, and operated, right, there's, there's a tremendous amount of complexity, right? You know, these modern systems and, and modern organizations are running, you know, all these different kinds of technology, right? They've got these very complex stacks, there's all these different languages, there are, you know, all these different execution environments, different protocols, different formats. And there's all these different stakeholders, right, that, that care about um, you know, how the system is is behaving, right? And so at the end of the day, it's important that you think about policy kind of like holistically across all of these things, because otherwise, right, if you, you don't get it right, then otherwise, the cost is really high, right? Like you can, you face things like security breaches, you can, you face, you know, you can get fined, right? If you, if you violate certain regulations, you can have, you know, downtime, right? And so on. So at the end of the day, the reason why we care about policy is because, you know, it, it helps us keep, keep things running. It, it's about 
about business continuity. It's about you know security. It's about privacy. It's about very important. We can use policies to restrict access of humans or of computers, of automated systems. Give a few examples of how policies are used. Just give us some examples that show off the broad spectrum of policies that are imposed upon a compute system. You know, like I said, what, policy means different things to different people, right? So if you talk to someone that's working, you know, at the infrastructure level, they're, they're worried about, you know, maybe network policy, right? They care about what IPs can talk to what other IPs, right? They care about what ports are exposed, right? Do you have, you know, an unencrypted HTTP server exposed on the public internet, right? Those are examples of policies that apply at the network layer, at the infrastructure layer. When you move up the stack a little bit and you start talking about, you know, platforms like, you know, container management platforms and you care about what images are running on the, on, on the platform, right? Like, where are those Docker images coming from that your, your developers are deploying through Kubernetes, right? That's, a, that's an important question. You know, you go up to the app layer and you start talking about, well, every application basically needs some kind of authorization system in it, right? You need to be able to control who can do what in that, in that application. And so then you're talking about things like API authorization, and data filtering and data protection and data masking. And so there's lots of interesting applications for policy in the in the application level and, and in the sort of in the data data level as well. Yeah, I saw the example in a couple different slide decks of Netflix wanting to impose policy, or actually this was just a broad example, but I think Netflix used it in one of their presentations. The example of if you have some kind of salary system. You want to be able to see the salaries of people who report to you and people who report below them. So you can see the salary tree of reports below you, but not above you. If if you're my manager, I shouldn't be able to see your salary. This is yet another form of policy management at, a, at an even higher level. Well, it's, it's an example of the high level, uh, application level I guess, data filtering or data, yeah. data privacy that you, you gave. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, the challenge that a lot of organizations face is that if you solve for all of these different policy problems independently, right, and you don't try to unify them at all, then it makes it really, really hard to kind of control the system or even know, like, what's the actual policy, overall policy sort of stat- status that is, that's in place right now, right? So, you know, if you want to just know like an answer, like, is it possible for somebody on the public internet to access like sensitive data in the system, right? That might require evaluating network policies, application level policies, it might require knowing who has like SSH access to a machine, right? Because if you get on the machine, then you can probably access the, you know, the database or something like that that's running on it. So it's really important when, you know, you start thinking about policy in large organizations to think about it holistically and to to try to solve for that. Now, this sounds like a gigantic set of, well, policies. If you're talking about from the top level of who can see whose salary to the bottom level of what microservice can provision additional instances or additional units of memory, this is a giant range of different policies that could be imposed across our infrastructure at a given company. And I think you're advocating for a single system to manage 
all of these different policies. Am I understanding you correctly? Yeah, I mean, I think that at the end of the day, you know, you do want like centralized management, right? So you want to have you know, one place that you can go to that you can, you know, ask those kinds of questions of. But I don't think that you necessarily need to enforce that policy centrally. And there are going to be places where you want to express the policy differently, right? So I think that the important thing to think about, or one of the important requirements to keep in mind, and this is something that we talked about with Netflix, which was that, you know, these modern systems are kind of characterized by heterogeneity, right? You've got you know, all these different languages and protocols and identity types, right? Like you mentioned, like you have, might have, you know, batch jobs running, you might have scripts, you might have, you know, services, you might have users all accessing the system. And so you've got all these different identity types that you need to try to unify over. The challenge is that it, it seems like you're trying to like, uh, you know, boil the ocean, right? And so the, the starting place, I think, for solving this in a, in a, in a better way is to, to think about decoupling at least the policy decision from the policy enforcement. And so that's like a big part of what we try to advocate for with OPA, like whether you're using the OPA policy agent or using any policy engine or anything like that, the idea of thinking about decoupling your policy decisions from your policy enforcement in your systems is super, super important because that's how you solve for that heterogeneity, right? You you don't hard code the policy in, 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 in every place that needs to evaluate it and, and you, you kind of think about separating it out. Policies are nothing new in some regard. I mean, our systems are new. So the, so the systems that we're dealing with, the cloud infrastructure and the sprawl of the size of our systems have certainly grown. The size of our organizations have grown. But the idea of managing policy, this goes back to read-write privileges on a Unix machine. How have policies historically been managed in software infrastructure? That's a good question. I mean, I think that there have been plenty of you know, policy systems in the past, right? You know, in the, the networking space is is uh, full of them. Uh, you know, the protocols like Radius and so on, you know, that help you manage AAA in network environments. You know, there are plenty of, you know, policy systems at the host level in, in Unix environments, things like PAM help you manage, you know, SSH and sudo. There are other examples, though, of more kind of like general purpose policy systems, right? So there's a framework called uh, ZACAML, which stands for uh, Extensible Access Control Markup Language. And so, you know, as the name indicates, it's a sort of like, it, it was, like an XML kind of based um, policy system. People that are that work in the policy space definitely you know are familiar with ZACML. They've heard about it, but it never really saw wide adoption, and that's for probably different reasons. But so there are there are existing solutions in the space. But I think that today what we're seeing with like like I said, all this kind of like you know compile time heterogeneity, all these different languages and so on uh, being used to build systems, and also like sort of like runtime dynamism, right? Like you've got container workloads that are you know spinning up and spinning down and. You've got, you know, you've got all these different identity types and you're worried about workload portability and all these concerns. Like it's becoming more of a a problem that people need to, you know, like think about solving because the alternative of like relying on, you know, kind of like traditional perimeter based, you know, network security doesn't really work in these newer environments, right? Like you you, you just don't have the same kinds of guarantees. So we just did a show with the Spiffy and Spire project, which is all about zero trust networking. And it sounds like this project, the policy and open policy agent, that's what it's called, OPA, open policy agent, right? It sounds like some of the ideas, there's some overlap in ideas in the changing nature of our systems. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I think that we're starting to see a lot of projects like Spiffy and, you know, the service mesh projects and then the open policy agent kind of start to address these things, right, by providing kind of like libraries or reusable building blocks that people can kind of take and, and put together to solve the problem holistically. And so like, as you, when you start to talk about zero trust, right, like, 
zero trust, it kind of just means, you know, you have two parties that want to communicate and, you know, you don't want to rely on some kind of like implicit, you know, security in between those parties, right, to, to, um, to secure the system. And so you want to basically push the security out to the edges to those two parties. And so the, the first thing you need to do there to, to, to achieve that is you need to establish some kind of identity, you have to have some kind of authentication system in place. And that's what systems like Spiffy provide. But once you've sort of solved authentication or identity and authentication, which to a large extent today are kind of like standardized to, to a large extent, um, you have to sort of start thinking about authorization and kind of like the how you're going to enforce rules that are very specific to your organization, right? So that's where that's where the open policy agent comes in. Once you've dealt with authentication, then you can start thinking about authorization and policy on top of that. Now, before we get into modern solutions and the idea of a policy engine, there are some anti-patterns with policy control that some organizations are probably engaged in, or maybe anti-pattern is too strong of a word, but there is this spectrum from manual policy control to automated policy control. Can you help us understand the the gradient between manual policy control and automated policy control and explain some of the what's problematic about somebody doing manual policy control, you know, manually editing a config file or changing a little dashboard thing that doesn't propagate in a consistent way. Help us understand those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, for a lot of people, policy is basically, you know, it's a wiki page, right? Or it's a spreadsheet or it's a document, right? It's a PDF, right? It's a set of, it's a bunch of, it's a checklist and a PDF or something like that. And the problem with that that approach, right, is that you get absolutely no guarantee that your policies are being enforced, right? So anytime that you want to know if if the system is secure, if you've got a good security posture, you know, you have to go and talk to some person on another team, you know, on another floor or something like that. And hopefully they know the answer, right? Hopefully they know the answer. Hopefully they've, you know, set the configuration file just right and, and it hasn't changed and the system hasn't changed in a way that invalidates that, right? So, you know, those sort of manual approaches that rely on tribal knowledge and, and kind of, you know, just, you know, documents, those are very brittle because, the, you know, the, the system evolves and they fall out of date um, and they provide absolutely no, no guarantee that things are being forced, right? So that's, that's sort of on the manual side. And as organizations grow and as their, their systems become more and more dynamic, that, that quickly falls over. And so what a lot of the time happens is that they kind of transition to an automated approach and, you know, when they when they transition to that automated approach, a lot of the time they're under, you know, constraints, right? They need to ship other features, right? They need to get things out the door. And so they they can't necessarily think about the problem holistically. And so a lot of the time you find, you know, policies being kind of just hard coded into software, right? Like policy checks that are just that, that you think, okay, today, like this is what the policy is today, this is what the rules are today. Um, and so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna write a few you know, lines of code in my service, and that'll be enough, right? While that gives you a stronger guarantee, the problem is, is that a lot of the time, especially like in large enterprises, a lot of the time, the policies are very kind of like organic, right? They evolve over time, um, and they and they change. And so that means they're difficult to predict. And that means that the thing that you've hard coded today is no longer going to be valid, you know, tomorrow, right? So where some people or some, some organizations kind of fall into a bit, of, a bit of a trap is that they end up kind of codifying their policies and software in such a way that it's difficult to manage them over time. That's that's what I would say there. I mean, you can obviously build your own kind of, you can kind of build your software to be as extensible as you like. 
but it takes a lot of effort to 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 do that, right? And and it's it's hard to get it right. And and a, and a lot of the time, you know, the the extension mechanisms that you build in, like a lot of the time, if you try to build a domain specific language or something like that, you know, it might meet you know half of your fifty percent of your use cases, but then you know you couldn't predict the the ones that you have tomorrow, and so then it falls over there, right? So. Um, that's that's sort of how we how we what we see in the in the space. A policy engine is a tool that we can use to get us closer to more automated policy management. What is a policy engine? So the way the way that we look at it is that policy engines, you know, they're they're just it's 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 a service that basically helps you offload policy decisions from, you know, your own service, right? So whenever your service needs to make a decision, like, should this API request be allowed? Or, you know, should this user be allowed to log into this machine? Or should this container be allowed to be deployed, right? Those are all examples of policy decisions. And those are things that a lot of the time are very organization specific. They're very dependent on context. They're dependent on, you know, information from the rest of the system. You don't want to go hard coding those things into your into your software. And so instead, what we say is take those decisions and, and offload them to a dedicated engine that has kind of programmability as a first-class citizen, right? That, that empowers the administrator to kind of change and tune and, and analyze as needed, right? So, you know, policy engines are just, just services that allow you to offload policy decisions like, you know, API authorization is a great, great example, but they allow you to offload those, AP, those authorization decisions um, to a dedicated component, right? And then you can focus on, on hard, building out that, that component, hardening it, right? Making it more performant, making it more scalable, making it more usable, building higher level tooling and so on, right? So it, it allows you to, you know, you kind of want to think about decoupling again, right? You want to split the problem out so that you don't have to try to solve it, you know, end times, right? You want to you be able to solve it once and then invest in that, that one solution. So I've got some detailed software architecture in my company. I've got hundreds of employees what is the process of adopting this policy engine? I've already got policies in place all throughout my company. How am I going to adopt something for this purpose? So I think like a lot of the time, you know, it's, it's difficult to just, it's difficult. You can't solve everything all at once, right? So, you know, you want to identify like a use case where um, where a policy engine is, is a good fit. And so, if you're looking at building out, you know, say a, like, like a platform within your organization, right, where you... You think that this platform is going to be used for a number of different purposes. You know, there's going to be a number of different teams relying on this platform. They're going to have different requirements around things like resource management and security. Then, you know, you start to think, well, okay, I need to build out this this thing, and it's got to be extensible. I don't want to design myself into a corner, so I'm going to basically identify the places in the system where policy decisions have to be made, and I'm going to kind of make sure that I have the right extension points in place so that I can kind of change and evolve the system over time to meet the different needs that that people are that my that my customers are going to have right so a lot of the time it the place to start is just to ensure that you have those extension points right that you have like a, a webhook or something like that where you can you know configure it to call it to another system and, and get a get a decision back right that's sort of like the simplest way to to approach the problem so so identifying those places where policy decisions need to be made and then ensuring that the thing that has to ultimately enforce the decision can get it from something other than its own, you know, internal code. Right. So you maybe in a gigantic organization, like a Netflix kind of organization, if you decide you're going to implement a policy engine, maybe somebody's in charge of standing up that policy engine, and then they can tell everybody else in the company, hey, you know, I know you're standing up new services all the time, you're standing up new databases all the time. Those databases have some access control logic and uh, some roles associated with them. 
you're going to need to build policies around your new services. From now on, if you want, you can use this policy engine that I've got. And then you gradually, people in the company can start using the policy engine to have a programmatic way of managing policy. Exactly, yeah. And I think that in a lot of organizations that, that go down that road, they the application team, the people building the application, like the product engineers, right, they're, they're happy because you know, they don't have to worry about, you know, rolling another authorization solution again, right? They can, they can kind of rely on sort of battle-tested, you know, internal solution for, for, the, for the problem, right? Obviously, it, it, it's difficult, though, to scale, you know, one of these, these things out for, for in a large organization. And by scale, I just mean, I don't mean like system scalability. I mean, you know, you have people that have to, you know, author policies, right? They have to write the rules, but that's not their day job, right? Like they don't spend eight hours a day, right? policy, right? And so the challenge is how do you do that? You know, how do you how do you expose the policy system to them in a way that's easy to consume, right? So I think that usability is a big is a big challenge. And it's actually probably the most important kind of thing to, to think about when you're talking about, you know, adopting a policy engine or adopting or tr- trying to roll out a, a policy system um, in an organization. There's a variety of ways that our services or our databases or our workstations or laptops can interface with the policy engine in order to get permission or to check permissions. What's the deployment model for a policy engine? Do we want to just embed a library in our code? Do we want to have a sidecar that's running alongside a all of our services? Do we want to have a standalone service that's a monolithic <laughs> way? For, right. Give me an understanding for how we want to interface with this policy engine. Yeah, that's that's a good that's a good question. Like I think that in the past, you know, some of those some of the policy systems in the past have been kind of very centralized, and 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 you want that for the from the man from for managing policy, right? You don't want to have to go and and update policies in. 15 different places whenever you, whenever the requirements change, right? So you want a single place to manage it. But when it actually comes to enforcing policy, you don't want to have to, you know, couple every single microservice in your organization to a single like internal, you know, centralized service, right? That, that there are a bunch of reasons why you don't want to do that, but two important ones are, you know, performance and availability, right? So what Netflix does and what a lot of companies do is they think about enforcing policy in a, in a decentralized way, right? In a, in a distributed way, right? So boils down to is typically likely it boils down to having a host level, you know, daemon or agent that runs on, on every single machine, right? Let's say, or it runs um, as a sidecar next to next to every service. And then the service can talk to it, you know, basically over local host, right? Or over, you know, a Unix domain socket or something like that. And so the result of doing that is that you, you pay less uh, cost in terms of latency when you need to make a decision and you don't impact availability, obviously, as much because you're not reaching out over the network every time you need to make a policy decision. And I think that in, you know, in large organizations that have moved to like a microservice-based architecture, that's particularly important because you might have, you know, four or five different services involved in the request chain to service a higher level application request, right? And so if at every hop in that chain, you need to call out over the network and wait for a decision to come back, you're going to pay the price in terms of latency and and availability. So I think the model that we're seeing people adopt more and more is, is a distributed model where the policy enforcement and the rendering of decisions happens out at the edge. But then you have this like centralized service that um, provides a portal effectively for people to author policy and see what policies are deployed and see how they're performing and see, you know, those kinds of things, right, to audit them and such. 
so I think what you're describing is, and this might relate to the open policy agent architecture, is you've got your service that has some kind of policies associated with it, and that service, maybe if we're talking about Kubernetes, it's running in a Kubernetes container or Docker container, and there's a sidecar node that has the policies that are associated with this service. Maybe it's embedded in a, in a small database, a small little cache, that every time a request is made to this service, the service can make a quick check in that sidecar to see, is it okay if this access happens? Like, does this, does this person, does this API even have, or does this service that's contacting me, does it even have the permissions, the correct role to be accessing this service? Because if not, then no, I'm not going to accept this request. But if yes, then yeah, sure, everything's fine. But you don't want to have to make an additional network call to a far network call, an expensive network call, a late, a highly latent network call to some other service. It's convenient to have this sidecar that's sitting there in another container just right next to your container and very quickly get the policies. But if you need a larger comprehensive set of policies, you can always reach out to the centralized database that contains all the policies. So probably your sidecar policy cache is only going to contain the policies that are relevant to your service at the last time that you you uh, warmed the cache. Yeah, and that, that's that's the right way to think about it, right? Like it's it's much better if in order to uh, render a policy decision, if that decision can be made locally, right? It's just it's just much simpler in terms of operations, right? And it's also it's also simpler when you're talking about testing, right? Like if you want to test the policy offline, it's nice if the policy is kind of self-contained, right? If all the information required to make a policy decision can be um, encoded into the policy or encoded into state that follows the policy around, then it's much easier to test it and kind of analyze it offline. Obviously, there are cases where that's not feasible, right? It's you can't, for example, replicate you know the entire LDAP database to every node in the system. And so there are cases where having the ability to execute, you know, a call out from the policy, perhaps on a, in a kind of a dynamic manner makes sense. But that's sort of like the, that's, that's not the norm, right? The, the, the goal is to kind of keep all the evaluation local. And then, and then that's just kind of like a, a special case, right? Is when you need to make a call out. So what's the process of propagating policy through a system? And how, so if we, if we have this sidecar model, so I've got a service, for example, that, people within the organization can ping this service and say, what are the salaries of my direct reports? Or they can say, here is a person, I want to know their salary. And the policy agent would have to permission them to be able to check if that if they have the rights to knowing this other person in the organization's salary. This, this Netflix example that we gave earlier. What's the process by which that, that check, that policy check is made, What's the process of deploying changes to the policy? What if somebody gets promoted? You've got to update the policies throughout the system. Give me an overview for how this works and how policy propagates through the system. Yeah, so it's important to keep in mind that there, there, there's sort of there's policy, right? There, there are kind of the rules, the logic, if you will, that 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 needs to be enforced. And then there's sort of like the the data, right? The context that's required for those policy decisions, right? And so you know things like who reports to whom or the groups in the organization right um, we typically think of that as as context as data that needs to get loaded with the rules with the logic right so 
when it comes to making that available to the policy engine or to any policy engine, there's kind of like different models that are that are available. And so it, it, it's standard stuff like, you know, do you need a pull-based pull or can, can, rather, can you start with kind of like a pull-based approach, which is usually simpler to deploy and more reliable? Or do you need like a push-based approach, which is more kind of, it can be more performant, can allow you to do kind of like lower latency updates of, to policy and to context, um, but comes with kind of additional cost in terms of complexity. And so like there's different trade-offs there when you start talking about how policy distribution should happen. And, and usually the answer is that like a hybrid approach is what you want to go with, right? You want for for eighty percent of your use cases, you know, a nice a, a sort of a simple pull based approach works works well enough. But then there are special cases where you know you, you need to kind of distribute policy much quicker, or you need to distribute context much quicker, or you know when a pol- when 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 uh, when the context changes, it needs to be propagated very quickly. And so then like the pull based approach doesn't work as well, and you need to think about it a little bit differently. So there's different kind of like architectural decisions that you need to make when you're when you're looking at that, and that's where you start getting into this idea of having a control plane for, for policy, right? And so having something that allows you to both control the policies that are in place that are distributed in the system and being enforced, as well as collect telemetry, basically, on those on those policies, right? Like, are they, you know, when was the last time that the, that the policy engine got its policy? What version of the policy is it running with? How is it performing, right? As well as, you know, you know, just like having an audit log of the decisions, for example, that have been have been rendered. So those are kind of like a separate set of concerns that you get into when you're managing this this, this kind of thing at scale. So we've been talking about policy engines in the abstract. You work on Open Policy Agent. What is Open Policy Agent? So the Open Policy Agent is just it's a it's an implementation of these ideas. It's an open source general purpose policy engine. Uh, we're, we've been hosted by the we're hosted by the CNCF as a sandbox level project uh, since earlier this year. And so that we we started the project a couple of years ago, about two years ago, a little over two years ago. And the the goal really was to create a, a new policy engine that could be used to enforce you know a variety of different kinds of policies across the stack. And it was sort of built with what at the time wasn't called cloud native, but really was kind of like a cloud native set of principles, right? So we wanted it to work well in a container, container-based environment. We wanted it to work well in, a, in large-scale kind of distributed systems environments. And we wanted it to have first-class support for very complex kind of deeply nested data models. So, you know, when you look at modern APIs and sources of context today, you know, they're, they're, they're all, it's all kind of document-oriented. It's like JSON data effectively, right? And so JSON is characterized by, you know, these kind of like deeply nested objects or maps and arrays and so on. And so what we wanted was a policy engine that was capable of understanding that kind of like rich contextual uh, data that's often represented as JSON. So we, we built out the kind of core of the policy engine against against that. And, and then we just, you know, since then, we've been kind of taking it and applying it to different systems and seeing and, you know, solving actual policy enforcement problems. Let's give a little bit of a case study. How does Netflix use Open Policy Agent? Uh, yeah, so that's a that's a great example. Um, they were one of the earlier adopters of the the project, and for them, you know, they have a basically they have a security platform team that's responsible for you know engineering you know a security sort of infrastructure for for the organization, and so they're concerned about you know securing access to 
basically the internal resources in Netflix, right? So, you know, HR systems, payment systems, batch jobs, sensitive data, and, and, and the like, right? And it basically the internal resources that make up the Netflix backend. And so, they have, you know, a number of different use cases involving things like microservice API authorization, access control over pub subsystems like Kafka, access control over who can, you know, just SSH into a box, uh, and so on. So they have a number of different use cases where they need to enforce access control or authorization. And so I think what they found was that the architecture that they were they were building, open, the Open Policy Agent lent itself very well to that. So um, they they have this kind of distributed enforcement model where they they have a you know effectively an, an agent or a, a process running on every machine, and that process embeds the Open Policy Agent as a library. And then whenever services on that machine need to make a decision, like whether or not to allow an API request, they, they call out to, to that agent and they get a decision back. So that's sort of it at a high level. They obviously have this kind of like more centralized management system as well in place that's not part of OPA. That's, that's their own internal proprietary system. But that, that allows them to manage the policies that are deployed. Um, it allows them to audit the policies that are deployed. It allows them to expose a portal to their end users, so that they, rather to the, to the users inside the company that have to define policy and so on. Um, but so for them, OPA really filled this gap of providing a, a kind of a building block, a reusable building block, a library, if you will, to express the policies with and to evaluate them. So there's not a lot of um, I, there's not a lot of value in most companies like reinventing the way that you express the policy or implementing the evaluation engine that takes those policies and and kind of answer queries against them. Um, and so they, they they recognize that and they 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 leverage the open policy agent there. Right. So you're concerned with the agent, which is the sidecar cache that's answering questions for your microservice. You're not reinventing the centralized policy engine from which this agent is taking the cache data, right? Exactly. Yeah. So the open policy agent is really focused on providing people with uh, kind of like a reusable language that they can use to express policy in. And then kind of like the the infrastructure that you need to get that um, deployed in your system, which is at the core, it's the kind of like evaluation engine, the thing that you know you feed with policies, and then you can ask questions against, right? Like you can ask, should this request be allowed? And then it'll return an answer of, you know, in, in that case, allow or deny or true or false. Um, but you can ask other kinds of questions as well. But that's just the simple example. That's what the open policy agent really focuses on. It's just providing um, you know, teams, companies, organizations with with that reusable building block that there's not a lot of value in, in, in kind of reinventing all over the place. What are the most difficult engineering problems in working on Open Policy Agent? The Open Policy Agent is used for a number of different um, use cases, right? Like I mentioned a couple, like, you know, API authorization is, is one, like in a microservice environment. But it's also used for doing things like enforcing um, invariance over over infrastructure, right? So, you know, putting rules in place that prevent people from, uh, you know, deploying bad container images in Kubernetes, right? Or, you know, exposing, you know, services in, in a test environment, you know, on the public internet, let's say, right? So it, it's used for a number of different use cases. So there are interesting challenges that come up there, right? You, you need to design the language such that it's not too tightly, it's, it's not tightly coupled to any of those particular use cases, but then still remains kind of like usable and approachable for people um, that that maybe aren't spending their entire, you know, that aren't spending their entire day thinking about policy and thinking about writing policy. So that's, that's one challenge is like, how do you craft uh, a language that is expressive enough for all these different use cases, but also easy to use and easy to ramp up on. On the more kind of like technical side, a lot of the use cases where OPA is applied have, you know, fairly tight performance constraints associated with them. So 
it's not at the point where we're suggesting that people run OPA in like the data plane of their network. And, and we probably won't, um, we wouldn't do that in any case, but certainly, you know, like in the microservice API authorization use case or in the, um, you know, in a, in a pub sub use case, you know, the engine has to be capable of rendering decisions, you know, certainly on the order of like about a millisecond, but it's much nicer if you can kind of treat it as something that doesn't cost anything. And so then you want to have the policy decision rendered as quickly as possible, right? So, you know, on the order of like a few microseconds or a hundred microseconds or something like that. So we pay a lot of attention to uh, performance and latency, scalability of how the policies and data are represented in the, in the engine. Um, and, and so there's a bunch of optimizations that we've put in place to, to kind of address that. And we've, we've got blog posts about that online if people are interested, but that's another challenge. Um, so I've got my salary checker service, and as we said, every every time a request comes in, there's going to be a check in the policy agent to make sure that this request gets approved, and that consists of accessing that sidecar, uh, looking in the cache, uh, and and the the language through which these policies are expressed is a domain specific language for creating and evaluating policies and you're you're saying that there is performance demands because obviously if you're going to add a check to a po- to policies for every single request that comes in you're going to really have to if you have a latency specific service that's a high bar to be able to not degrade the latency specifically and if you're going to be deploying this to every single service potentially in an organization then you've got a really high bar. You've got you've got high constraints. Now, on the bright side, you know it. It seems like you you don't really have to solve problems like I mean, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but like things like network partitions or node failures or you know the the cache getting too big. It seems like these these things are are not too like really in in your purview as as yep. much. The problem is more like you need to be very responsive to requests. You need to be able to evaluate requests, API requests really quickly. And that requires building a super performant domain specific language and I guess parsing engine and and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. And so we we spend a lot of time working on things that help if, so for example, you know, OPA can kind of pre-evaluate large portions of the policy, right? So when it comes to actually enforcing the policy, maybe it's already done a bunch of the work to pre-compute portions of the policy that are known ahead of time, right? So that's that's one example of like an optimization that, that OPA does. We It also does things like build um, indices for the, the rules that you give it, right? And so that means that basically when, when you ask OPA for a policy decision and you provide a bunch of input data, instead of having to kind of scan through all the rules, you know, linearly, let's say, um, OPA can kind of just look at the index and then jump to the specific rules that need to be evaluated for that input. Um, and so that, you know, that'll provide like an asymptotic, uh, you know, speed up in certain cases. So so we, we kind of invest putting the right data structures and algorithms in place to ensure that OPA is scalable to, to, to as, as great an extent as possible. And then there are, you know, obviously a bunch of kind of like micro optimizations that we, that we make and we try to make to do things like avoiding, you know, copying data around unnecessarily during evaluation and so on. So that's, that's kind of one area. At the same time, like if you start talking about enforcing policies that depend on large amounts of context that you can't fit into memory, that you can't fit into RAM on a single node, then you have to kind of go in a different direction. You can't necessarily like replicate all the context that you need, say out of like a SQL database into OPA and then ask it, you know, should this request be allowed? And so in those circumstances, in those scenarios, we, we have a different approach where basically instead of moving all the data that's required to make a policy decision into OPA and then evaluating the policy inside of OPA, 
we take the policy and we translate it into, um, say, like a SQL query or something like that that can be pushed down to where the data lives, right? So we, instead of moving the data to where the policy is, we move the policy to where the, the data is and have it enforced at, at the data level. So there are all kinds of different tricks you can play to help sort of to, based on the use case effect. You hinted at a use case with service mesh earlier, or maybe you were just, you were saying that that's kind of a, another thing that's kind of in the same space as Spiffy and uh, Spire. Service mesh is another thing that gets often deployed as a sidecar that sits alongside this service and, and helps with things like retry logic and circuit breaking and you know feature flagging. Service mesh is this kind of uh, wild card of, of different purposes that a service can can use. So is open policy agent something you would want to deploy in that same sidecar or would you deploy it as a separate sidecar? Um, I think that, I mean, people have different opinions about how that works. Obviously, like you don't want to have a separate sidecar for every kind of function or capability in the system, right? Because suddenly you're going to have your, your application process and then, you know, a dozen sidecars running next to it. So I think that in the, in the service mesh case, having having a, a sidecar model is, is very useful. And so we, we see people running OPA as a sidecar. But when you start looking at projects like like Envoy, for example, right, that's a very popular service mesh or service proxy. We're starting to see a lot of different kinds of programmability features going into Envoy and other other service proxies. And so you could imagine having you can imagine having your your policies effectively compiled down to a format that's understood by the service proxy and enforced kind of like in line inside of the service proxy without having to require like a call out to another 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 sidecar. So it's really that that's a much more kind of like it's a lot sort of harder decision to make and it depends really on, on your organization and you know who who manages what, right? Sometimes there's a there's one team that's worried about that has to be worried about policy and security and then there's another team that's worried about, you know, like say just service connectivity, right? And so in that model, having two separate systems might be advantageous, but it, it's really sort of an organization-specific decision. So I've been covering this space a lot, and I'm I'm very interested in the business, the go-to-market strategy of different companies and the places where there is some competitors. One area of competition that I find intriguing is the Istio and Linkerd service meshes and i don't think it's a winner take all world at all i think it seems like there's room for both of those projects to be extraordinarily successful what are the design differences between those two service mesh systems i mean i think that so i'm not, I'm not like a, i wouldn't call myself like a service mesh expert i think that they have similar designs to a large extent right you know they, they rely on on a service proxy to to handle the data plane and then they rely on a, on a centralized control plane to manage the you know the the routing rules and and all of that as well as things like identity and then also collect telemetry um, and help you kind of like understand and observe the system so from that respect they're they're very similar i think that istio is solving a lot of problems and it's it's trying to go across it's trying to go outside of just you know just kubernetes right like you could use it outside of kubernetes so i think that uh, you know, Linkerd is more focused now on, on Kubernetes specifically, and, and there, are, there are advantages to both, right? Um, you know, being able to focus on one platform means that you can kind of provide a tailored sort of user experience for that platform, which I think a lot of people would appreciate. At the same time, you know, not everything is going to run on Kubernetes, right? Or will, you know, in the near future, at least run on Kubernetes. And so having the ability to connect, you know, multiple different systems together with something like Istio is, is compelling. From a policy point of view, 
I think that, you know, service meshes are, are great. They help you, you know, offload, like you said, different different functions from services like like rate limiting and feature flagging and authentication and authorization, right, between those services. But at the end of the day, you know, there are going to be application level policies that need to be able to be enforced in the services that are running on top of the mesh. And those application level policies, you can't really solve those with like a simple protocol level or request header level um, policy system, right? Like the, it, as soon as you want to kind of reach into the message message payload in, in the request, or you want to do anything based on like the data that a service is returning, then the service meshes don't really address that kind of a problem. So that's one angle. The other angle is that, you know, that's that's a popular use case for OPA, as well as other policy engines is just, you know, enforcing invariance over, over infrastructure, right? And so that's, again, part of the challenge here is that you don't want to end up having like end policy systems in place, right? Because then you lose the ability to control and, and, and understand what's going on. So I think there's definitely room for something that's like outside of the, the service mesh that helps you manage policy. And then maybe it leverages features provided by the service mesh to do the actual enforcement. But from a management point of view, you don't necessarily want to rely like entirely on like a service mesh policy system. Speaking of business, you are working on Styra, which is a company you're building related to OPA. What is Styra? What's your plan for the business? So yeah, so we, we're one of the main kind of backers of the open policy agent today. We, we kind of are the main contributors today. You know, we also provide helping, you know, large enterprises move workloads to the cloud. And, and a big part of that is, you know, helping them solve authorization in across a number of different systems, as well as, you know, helping them move internal systems up to the cloud. And, and a big part of that is solving authorization there. So I can't say uh, too, too much about what we're doing at Styra just because we're still in, in stealth. But, you know, generally we see that, you know, large organizations, large enterprises have a need to, you know, unify and control authorization across multiple disparate, disparate systems like, you know, microservices, like, you know, SSH, like public cloud, Kubernetes and so on. And so we see an opportunity to help them do that, you know, using open source technology like the open policy agent and, and so on. What are the exciting areas in this space, in the, cl- the cloud native space right now that are interesting to you or exciting to you? For me right now, the thing I'm most excited about is WebAssembly. So I'm not sure how familiar oh, yeah. you are. We, we did, uh, we did like that. four or five shows about it a while oh, ago. Great. I'm I, that, I'm surprised to hear you say that, but really interested to hear why. So like, as you know, you know, WebAssembly is this kind of standard instruction set, right? That's that's being kind of pushed by by large, you know, software companies like Google and Mozilla and, and others. And so what it provides is kind of like an open um, platform to um, run code on, right? And so there's a lot of interest in taking, you know, arbitrary code that you've written for maybe for a backend or in a, in a language other than JavaScript and running it in the browser, right? And that's that's the main kind of like thing that you hear about WebAssembly for today is taking, you know, code, say, written in Go and running it in, in, in the browser. Um, and that's really cool. But within the WebAssembly community and in general, there's a lot of interest in using WebAssembly outside of the browser, using it in the backend, using it in the data center. And so there's a lot of interesting applications for it. You know, essentially, it provides, a, you know, a safe, efficient, portable runtime for, for code, right? And so whenever you have this need for programmability or extensibility in a system, um, that's a really nice, those are nice properties. And WebAssembly is this kind of nice open standard that has those properties. So 
we're starting to see a lot of different players kind of start to announce support for WebAssembly. Like recently, Cloudflare, for example, announced the ability to run WebAssembly on their workers, right? And they're different, like they've got 150 something points of presence, you know, around the globe. And so you could imagine taking applications and compiling them down to WebAssembly and then running them at the edge. I think people are also talking about using WebAssembly for serverless applications, right? There's a lot of interest, I think, in the in the blockchain community around uh, WebAssembly. So there's a lot of different uh, kind of folks that have all become kind of interested in WebAssembly and interested in using it to provide greater kind of programmability and flexibility in backend or whatever you want to call it, backend kind of software. So exciting part for me about this is that because you can kind of run code or logic on WebAssembly, you know, it provides kind of like a platform for policy enforcement, right? Today with OPA, you know, Open Policy Agent, it's written in Go. And, and so that, that provides kind of like a, a barrier for people that want to embed it as a library in non-Go languages. And, it, you know, you can run it as a daemon, obviously, it's an agent, you can run it as a daemon, but that has comes with its own set of challenges. And so WebAssembly is kind of like a an exciting or it's a, it's an interesting target for, for compiling policies down into and for using for enforcement. So the idea is that you can basically write your policies in, in OPA's language, and then we give you a compiler that takes those policies and compiles them down into kind of native WebAssembly. So we actually we released an initial version of that a few weeks ago, and the plan now over the next few months is to kind of extend the fragment of the language that's supported by the compiler. Um, so that you kind of have complete coverage of Rego, the, the policy language in this WebAssembly compiler. To boil your enthusiasm about WebAssembly down to a few distinct points, so one of them is the interoperability, or the, the fact that you could use Rust or uh, C++ in the browser, which is fantastic. Another side of it, I think, is WebAssembly is a, an abstraction that uh, restricts the resources that a program has access to, right? Like, isn't it a memory-constrained environment? And it's also, you know, it has security constraints yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. You can verify, like, statically that it's the, the, the memory accesses that are being made by the program are safe, right? So you, you, you can kind of, barring certain kinds of attacks, you can kind of trust that, 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 that the thing is going to run um, safely. You can also put limits on how much memory can be consumed, right, which is important when when you're talking about something like a policy policy query, it's, it's kind of easy to, to kind of constrain it in, in the host environment. And it's fairly easy to embed, right? It's it, We're starting to see language or rather run t- WebAssembly runtimes pop up in, in different languages like Go and, and other uh, other languages. So you could embed V8 or you could use a, you know, a, a native implementation of, of it. But yeah, it, it basically enables deep programmability in all of these different backend systems. Very interesting. Well, Torin, it was great talking. I'm excited about OPA and very interested in your uh, your WebAssembly answer. That's what else do you think is going to change due to WebAssembly? Like when I did these shows, I was like, this technology is blowing my mind. I I don't understand how how this is this is going to change things. So it's very hard to predict. It's also hard for me to predict how long it's going to take to roll out. I mean, are we headed for a world with just everybody using Chromebooks? <laughs> Maybe that would that would be interesting. But I guess it um, actually doesn't matter because even, even if you were using a Mac OS, you could just have all the applications run in WebAssembly, and they would feel like non-browser. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of the goals, right, are similar to, to Java, right, yeah. or the JVM. Right, right? It was right. like you know you could write code once and it would run anywhere. Or kind of Docker, um, Docker in some ways you know, too. One of the differences here, yeah, and like like Docker, yeah, and and you know some of the difference here is that you know the the WebAssembly spec is is very it's, it's fairly it's very well specified. It's not very complicated right now. Hopefully, it, hopefully it stays that way. But I think that one of the kind of uh, one of the one of the exciting things right now within 
using WebAssembly is that you see WebAssembly support popping up in all of these different places kind of at the same time, right? You're seeing it like CDNs are, are like supporting crypto. it. You're seeing crypto people getting into it. You're seeing, you know, all the, like you're seeing all these languages adding backends, right? Like Rust and Go, right? Like they've they've kind of really just jumped ahead and added, you know, support for WebAssembly. Or, you know, like C compilers, like LLVM and so on. That they they have like really good support for WebAssembly. So I can't think of another kind of. I have a hard time coming up with another example of technology that's being like widely adopted as quickly as WebAssembly is in the kind of backend infrastructure space, right? So I think it's, it's what's really funny surprising. about it is it's kind of an apolitical technology because nobody could really productize it. It's more like everybody productizes it all at once. Yep. <laughs> yeah, everybody everybody wins, I guess. Maybe that's the maybe that's the secret to this stuff. Interesting. Okay, Torrent. Well thanks for coming on the show. It's been really great talking. My pleasure. Yeah. Great talking. Take care. Wow. 